Please keep your Bibles open as we will especially be looking at this passage in detail. This summer, I listened to a biography of Leonard Nimoy, alias Spock, and it was written by his co-actor, William Shatner, alias Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. Now, you may wonder exactly what was interesting about this book. And actually, there was something that was fascinating. It was the confusion that the actors had when they would go out and do appearances. Now, these didn't happen right away. The TV show only lasted three years. But it was afterwards that suddenly there was much more interest as Trekkies started to talk about the unusual starship enterprise. And when the movies started to take hold and the cast were brought together again, they started talking about how, yeah, we did have some good times, didn't we? But what they were surprised at and what caused so much confusion among the actors was the response of fans to their characters. Because what they found out was the fans believed that they embodied the characters. So rather than meeting the actors, they were meeting their favorite characters. And there was more than just interest, and it was more than just esteem. It was true adoration, adulation at every turn. And it got to be to the place that they had to take on the persona of their character again. Let me give you an example. For Leonard Nimoy, who was a consummate professional, he had actually created the backstory for Spock. He was the one who created the famous greeting, live long and prosper. He also created the pinch that would somehow render someone unconscious or unable to fight back without damaging them or hurting them because that was the Vulcan way. Leonard Nimoy created that backstory But what was interesting is he found that interactions with fans was transcendent. In fact, they at times used the word of American mythology because they were looked at as gods. Let me give you an example. One time when they were at a university, Leonard was asked by a couple of graduate students in microbio if they would come up to their lab, being a very kind Gracious man, he said, certainly, of course. They brought him up and they started to explain their graduate level project to him, expecting the science engineer from the Starship Enterprise to give them feedback. And Leonard Nimoy, again, just an amazing actor, though he had never graduated from college, knew how to listen well. And he asked some clarifying questions and at the end they asked his opinion and he said, I think you might be on to something here. Now, what was fascinating was he didn't break character. He didn't let his fans down. And yet, at the same time, he was able to be himself. Now, I realize this is kind of an odd and perhaps even very obscure point. But sometimes confusion seems to filter into our perception of reality. Sometimes we just don't see things quite as clearly as we might. Paul had a little bit of this same confusion. I mean, what would you think if your pastor was in prison? Hmm. What would you think if something that 
you might consider God doesn't do as a blessing had suddenly come upon someone who is a Christian. You know, sometimes we think in those terms instead of wanting to understand what God is doing in those times. And Paul is so fascinating because if you, if you look at our passage, it starts off with the words, for this reason. And then he doesn't really get to the reason. He, that actually is picked up again in the next part. In verse 14, he said, for this reason. Why? Because he hasn't illuminated on He hadn't talked about that yet. But in between times, he has something that he especially wants to do. He wants to be able to explain to his friends what is happening in his life, but more than that, what is happening in his ministry and how God is using it, not only to advance the gospel, but also he's using it to bless him. He doesn't want them to be confused. And he wants to do this especially because of his love for them and his love for those who may come to know of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it would be good for us to spend some time and just look to see how Paul does this. Let me just do a quick review, uh, again, because we need to kind of go back and be reminded. The first full verse of Ephesians in chapter one is from our English, uh, verses three through 14. In it, we discover God's will, his resolve, that ultimately we will appear before him holy and blameless, verse four. Now, obviously, it's not something we can achieve in our own efforts. It's something that we are very much dependent upon God But you know, it helps so much if we have that clarifying object of what is our purpose? What does God desire that our lives should be? The second sentence was verses 15 through 23. And it's an amazing prayer that Paul gives asking God to reveal himself to us intimately. You see, in order for us to be holy and blameless, we need to be able to see God. And he asks that God graciously might show us himself. It's not only that we might be inspired, but rather that we will be wholly captured by who our God is. The third sentence, it begins in Ephesians 2, and it describes our desperate situation of being spiritually dead and in need of divine intervention through sovereign grace, whereby we are made alive with, raised up with, and seated with Christ. And the concluding sentence is, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which could be very dispiriting in saying, oh, I'm just a tool in God's hands. But that's what the previous sentence was about. He didn't ask that we would be autotrons or robots, but rather he asked God to reveal himself so that we might be overwhelmed by a relationship, a dynamic living relationship that we have with this amazing God who calls us to be holy and blameless before him. The second part of Ephesians 2, Paul points to Christ as our peace by stripping away any works-based, perfect obedience required salvation. Christ has removed any spiritual difference between those born into his chosen people Israel and the rest of us thereby uniting us together in a new identity, the new society, the church. We are indeed joined together in unity because Christ is our peace. And now Paul wants to reveal his role 
in what was previously unknown plan of God and to assure his friends that things are good. He does this in three ways. One is the mystery revealed, the gospel understood, and a more vibrant perspective on his situation. Now, this is kind of interesting because, again, if if, if you think about this, Paul is actually in prison. It's not as though he's going out and he's trying to look at his career and explain it. Well, this is how God led me here, and then he led me here, and then he led me here. No one wakes up in the morning and say, Mommy, I want to be a prisoner. It doesn't happen that way. So how is it that Paul has ended up in prison? And again, what's interesting is we might say, well, you know, Paul, uh, we just don't understand it. See, he's concerned that the Ephesians might think his arrest might discourage them and doubt God's care for Paul as well as for them. Because remember, this was a person that God had used in their lives. They were very much attached. And often people do get attached to their pastors. They, they find that those who bring the word of God to them are, are so special to them because God has used them powerfully. And that's true and appropriate. But we've got to remember that we're human. We don't have a corner on the market. We're not smarter than other people. It's by God's grace that we've been called to preach. So Paul is trying to help them understand this role. And he wants them to understand that there's a reason that all of this is going on. So the first is the mystery revealed. Now for us, a mystery is a set of clues that we figure out something that was unknown. But within the Bible, mystery means something that is only known to the initiated. It is not that the thing itself is unknown, but it's unknown by only those to whom it's revealed. Rick Phillips is very interesting. He says, you know, college fraternities mimic this today with initiates having to learn arcane phrases and secret handshakes. Christianity is like this in one sense in that we have knowledge nobody else has, namely God's plan for salvation. (laughs) But the difference is we want everybody to know this. This is a mystery that needs to be revealed and we want to share with others. In other words, Paul is saying here, I know the mystery. I have the key. I didn't find it. I didn't discover it. Instead, it was given to me by direct revelation of God. God had to break through my deadness, my blindness to make me see it. Boy, isn't that true? If you think about Paul's former life, wow, what a complete turnaround that was. Now, what's even more amazing was that Paul wrote it down. What a gift. What a gift the scripture is to us. That this truth is not something that was just passed down from person to person. But we have it written in the scriptures, God's book. I don't know if any of you are Anglophiles and watch the coronation of King Charles III. Uh, Some of the parts of the coronation were unusual. They're very old, but they were also very much based on scriptural principles. How do you have a person on earth take on a crown and say, we want you to hear God calling you to this high office? One of the things that happened is that the Church of Scotland pastor 
gives him, presents the new monarch with a Bible saying, the most precious thing this world affords, the most precious thing that the world knows is God's living word. God's hidden will made before the foundation of the world was when we were chosen in Christ for salvation. It's now revealed by the Spirit of God. And this will includes both Jews and Gentiles because now it is based upon faith alone. Previously, and to fully appreciate this, it is amazing at how things have changed. You know, when we look at society the way it was, the way Paul had grown up, there was such a prejudice between Jews and Gentiles. They, they not only didn't consider each other worth speaking to, it was worse than that. Jews considered themselves God's chosen people. Therefore, if you weren't chosen, you're obviously destined and fueling the fires of hell. That's ex- exactly how it was said. Suddenly, to have that changed, now it was changed slightly. Any Gentile could become a part of Israel. They could come by proselytizing. They could become an Israelite, become a member of the covenant community through the rite of circumcision. But they had to abandon everything else and become a citizen of Israel. You see, now Paul is presenting something that everyone would hate. But that was no longer necessary because of what God has done. God has changed the requirements. It's no longer whether you were part of the chosen nation. Rather, it's because I choose you to come by faith. And by faith, you will receive everything that the Israelites have received. You know, he he actually goes further to expand this idea of what he started in the end of chapter two. And he uses three words. He makes up the words. So he adds the word sin or with together. And he combines that with three words, heir, body, and partner. Now, it's hard to quite get the meaning in English, but uh, the New American Standard does it by doing fellow heir. So let me read it in that. The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now fellow heirs means there's no inner circle or outer circle of the saved. Jews are not first rate and Christians second rate. Nothing like that. Rather, we who are in Christ inherit all of God's blessings. Fellow members of one body means we are all one church, unified around Christ. Paul will expand on this idea in chapter four. This means that whatever benefits one, benefits all. And whatever hurts one, hurts all. Sometimes we forget both of those elements. We like to go down a very narrow path. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, We are all equally sinners. We're all equally helpless. We've all come to one and the same Savior. We have the same salvation. We have the same Holy Spirit. We have the same Father. We even have the same trials. And finally, we're all marching and going together to the same eternal home. 
We don't need to try to push in front of each other. Rather, we can enjoy this. And we are fellow partners, sharing together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Dr. Boyce reminds us that the Bible has many promises for those who trust God and come to him through faith in the work of Christ. But the word in this phrase is singular, promise. And for that reason must refer to the promise of redemption made to our first parents, repeated to Abraham, and so is now shared by all who believe in Christ. Indeed, that is what we will come to celebrate at the table. Second, Paul wants all of us to understand that the gospel is understood, extending this idea of the mystery within the greater gospel. Paul, part of the irony of Paul's life is that he didn't want to be a minister of the gospel. In fact, as I quoted earlier, he was the one who was imprisoned now, but he was the one who used to incarcerate others. How ironic. And yet now, now he offers a freedom because God has broken into his life. John MacArthur wisely wrote, any person in the ministry of the church whom God has not appointed is a usurper. No matter how seemingly good his intentions, he could do nothing but harm the work of the Lord and to the Lord's people. No man should enter the ministry unless he is absolutely certain of the Lord's calling. It was only by God's grace that Saul was given salvation. It was only by God's calling that Paul was made to understand this mystery. It was only by God's power that Paul was called to be a minister of this grace in Christ. Verse seven, the self-proclaimed least of the saints. Verse eight. In stark contrast to this diminished life now given so much value and purpose, Paul is to teach the unsearchable riches of Christ against a grander backdrop. In verses 10 and 11, Paul uses an unusual word to speak of God's wisdom. Polupokalos, my Greek is very bad, I apologize. But the word means many colored. As I've done in previous sermons, let me ask you again, look around you. Really? We would all be here if it wasn't for Christ? I don't think so. The many colors are not skin, it's not culture. It is the wonderful color of how we have come to know of Christ's grace. How how we are all drawn to this table because of the work of Christ in our lives. That is the unifying part. That is the many different faceted colors of grace. We need to know each other better so that we can start to appreciate the beauty of Christ which is seen in the multifacets of the church as it turns in the light of this gospel. But Paul now pulls back the curtain to reveal a larger stage upon which this grace, this redemption of broken lives is displayed, might now currently be made known to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Verse 10. Now, this cosmic background was hinted in verse one, verse, chapter one, verse three, when we were informed of our spiritual blessings in Christ being, quote, in the heavenly places, unquote. But what did we understand of it then? 
When we get to chapter 6, we will see that in God's plan to make us holy and blameless before him, chapter 1, verse 4, his wisdom is doing this through the unified citizenry of the church, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, culminating in this truth pitting us by his power to stand against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, chapter 6, verse 12. Wow. Did you know that? God somehow is using us as his weak people, emboldened and strengthened by his grace and power, that we may show forth his wisdom, his glory to all of the spiritual realm. And so in chapter 3, verse 11, Paul states that this was God's eternal purpose, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord, an end that we might have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him, verse 12. Indeed, this is our foundational, foundational encouragement that we have in God's plan, that we may come boldly into his presence. Verse 13, however, this comes at a price to Christ and to those who would follow him. You see, the third thing that Paul wants to show us is a clearer perspective. I was made so that Christ. The sufferings of Christians have been known for many years, and if we go to Hebrews 11, we see quite the litany of what Christians in yesteryear have suffered. Sometimes we put that out of our minds. We think, you know, in this modern-day America, we won't get that type of suffering and persecution again. And I hope not, but that is not guaranteed. Remember, our God does not say that he will help us to escape, but rather he will be with us as he guides us through. Did you know that of the 318 attendees to the Council of Nicaea, which drafted the creed, fewer than 12 had not been tortured for Christ and lost body parts? Fewer than 12. That means over 300 of those who were assembled were assembling because they believed They believed in the creed that they were writing in their understanding of scripture. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1, 11 and 12, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. You know, the point of view of a person can really change everything. How did Paul view his imprisonment? Now, any ordinary person would have said that Paul was a prisoner of the emperor Nero. And so he was. Or, I'm in jail because of the opposition of the Jewish people who rioted when I went to the temple, since that was what brought me into into custody in the first place. But Paul never thought of himself as a prisoner of Rome. He always thought of himself as a prisoner of of Christ, a prisoner of Christ. In John 15, 18 through 19, we are told the world will hate us because it hates Christ. 
Martin Lloyd-Jones expands on this. The offense of the Christ is this, that I am so condemned and so lost and so hopeless that if he, Jesus Christ, had not died for me, I would never know God and I could never be forgiven. And that hurts. That annoys. That tells me I'm hopeless, that I'm vile, that I'm useless, and as such, I don't like it. And I think that somewhere in the back of our minds, we will say, yeah, that's true. In Philippians 1, 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Jesus said, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 23. To be a disciple then is to be a prisoner of Christ or not. The cross means that we must die to self-centeredness and self-ambition so that Christ might live in us. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2, 19 through 20. And so Paul may say, I am a prisoner of Christ, verse 1, or I am a steward of God's grace, verse 2, or I am a seer into the mystery of Christ, verse 4, or I am a minister of, the go- of this gospel, verse 7, or I am a preacher of the unsearchable riches in Christ, verse 8. But he clearly understood and accepts this pathway for the goal of glorifying and serving God. Paul thought of his imprisonment as just one more way of preaching the gospel. There's a famous story when Sir Christopher Wren was building St. Paul's Cathedral. On one occasion, he was making a tour of the work in progress. He came to a man at work and asked him, what are you doing? And the man said, I'm cutting this stone a certain size and shape. He came to a second man and asked him what he was doing. And the man said, I'm earning a living at my work. He came to a third man at work and asked him what he was doing. The man paused for a moment straightened himself and answered, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. See, much depends upon our perspective. I, I came so that Christ, I am so that Christ through his church may display and make known, verse 10, his manifold wisdom in the heavenly places. Verse 11, the eternal purposes in Christ, which are bigger than an individual. Oh, oh, and so much more. That we might understand how salvation is for us individually, but also together as a church. Three, the unfettered access we now have to God through faith in Christ with boldness and confidence. This is the focus of the ministry and the message. This letter exists because Paul's care for and unity with the Christians at Ephesus. He reminded them of his stewardship as part of God's plan for their salvation. Because of his ministry, they could know God's word by reading it, receiving grace from God for spiritual life, sharing together, sharing as heirs together, members together, and partakers together in the promise of, of salvation. The focus is upon this message. Our lives 
are framed by this focus. So, let's step back. How are we doing? What's our perspective? Now, the mystery we've known, it's revealed in Scripture and has been made known to us by His Spirit. And so, we have the same stewardship responsibilities that Paul had. This gospel is one that needs to be shared. And we have the same responsibility as did Paul to share this gospel with others. And Paul knew his special place in serving God. Do we know ours? Um, many years ago, there was uh, a man named Pastor Joe Aldrich. He told a of a very unusual opportunity to share Christ during marriage counseling with a couple who had come through the recommendation of others to come to his church. At their weekly meetings, the two came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, and then suddenly it became mentorship and discipleship, and they'd meet weekly. And as the time went by, Joe, Pastor Joe encouraged them to start a Bible study at work, and they took up that challenge. And a number of months later, they said, hey, sometime would you come to our workspace, meet our, our, our fellows, uh, all the Christians who come and join in our Bible study? They said, sure, we'd be delighted. Where does your Bible study meet? They said, well, we meet at this restaurant after closing time. <laughs> he said, wait, after closing time? They said, yes. He said, you know, in all these years, I've never asked you, what do you two do for work? And they said, we're professional ballroom dancers. And he said, really? I didn't know you could make a profession of that. He said, yes. He said, we do a lot of contests, but he said, in between times, we're hired by clubs and by restaurants to actually dance on their dance floors so as to be able to encourage others to dance. And we give little tips on how they can move and glide better around the floor. But we've gotten to know the wait staff in all of the restaurants and clubs. And we took that challenge of starting a Bible study, of sharing Christ with others, and so we get together after the restaurants close. Come, meet, meet our friends. So at eight o'clock, didn't start till eight, at eight o'clock they started clubbing, going from one of these clubs and restaurants to the other, they watched their friends glide around the floor, they also got up and tried dancing themselves. But they said every time we walked into a restaurant, it was fascinating because suddenly these two were surrounded by people from the wait staff who were saying, are we on for tonight? They said, oh yeah, we'll see you at 3 a.m. And that was when they would meet for the Bible study. And you know, Joe reflected on this and he said, you know, this is wonderful. I can't imagine being comatose. You know, I'm usually comatose at 3 a.m. I can't imagine being able to get up at 3 a.m. And look at how God is using you in the lives of all of these people who you touch on a regular basis. This is fabulous. God has called you to a very special ministry, and I rejoice in it. I'm not a ballroom dancer. I don't know about you, but, you know... It really comes down to the perspective. Some of you may know Bruce Garner. Bruce is in a difficult spot right now. He broke the law and he is in prison. 
But Bruce had experience in this regard. You see, he had already broken God's law many, many years ago. He had already come to be forgiven before the bar of God's justice. It was when he found the truth of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, our God is faithful and he's just and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Faithful. Why is he faithful? God's faithful because Christ has offered to us salvation. He has offered for us to come into the covenant blessing to be fellow heirs, fellow members of his body, fellow fellow people who can join in the promises that are given. See, God is faithful to do that, but you know what's even better? He's also just. He will not abrogate the law. He will hold us to the standard of the law, but he holds us to the standard of the law that has been paid for by Christ. That's what we celebrate here. And that's why it is not us who are forgiven because of our merits. It's because Christ was forgiven and his merit is now given to us by faith if we will confess our sins and believe that we have received forgiveness through Christ. Bruce has understood that truth and I'm happy to say that before he went to prison, he was able to meet with the elders. We had a wonderful evening where Bruce was able to talk about how he had opened his heart to sin and how that sin had taken hold and root and now it had destroyed everything. But God, shortest summary of the gospel, but God, but God heard his confession and forgave him. And as a session, we rejoiced that in Christ's name, we were also able to extend to him forgiveness and restoration to fellowship. Now our brother is on the inside of a prison, but he's free. He is free to talk about, yeah, I messed up. Yeah, I deserve to be here, but... I got something I can share with you that might change your life forever. Pray for Bruce. He understands that God has given him an opportunity that he might be in a place where the gospel of Christ might not be heard. Because here's the thing about the gospel of Christ. It can be proclaimed in many places, but until the truth is seen in a life, some people just won't believe it. See, that's why when people see Christ in us, when they see truth and love welded together in a life that has purpose and direction, they want that because that's the full gospel. That's why we as a church need to really spend time loving each other because it's 
by our love we will be known. Isn't that what the scriptures say? You know, this is what we need to be reminded of. Our God is calling us to be holy and blameless. Let's start moving towards that direction. But let's do it together as a congregation. Let's encourage each other, remind each other, challenge each other to be able to move towards that, to rely upon our Christ, to rely upon his Holy Spirit for power and for grace, for understanding and knowledge that we may be able to work, walk into heaven, having done all we can with our heads held high because of the work of Christ that has been given to us. Let us be prisoners of Christ held captive to this gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for all that has been given to us. Increase and enlarge our hearts that this grace may be such a joy that there may be many opportunities to share this with others. For the glory of our Lord and Savior in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.